The Golden Mike Podcast is presented by SeaDeck Marine Products. Find out about all of SeaDeck's amazing standard and customizable applications at www.seadeck.com. That's S E A D E K.com. And now, it's showtime. He's been the voice of wakeboarding for over a decade. His vocal tones have narrated Toad Water Sports' biggest and most prestigious events in the world. With over 25 years on the water experience, charisma, and command of his audience, Noise of the North brings you the Golden Mike Podcast with Dano the Mano. Welcome back to another episode of the Golden Mike Podcast. I'm the Noise of the North, Dano the Mano. Recording down in super chilly, 65-degree Orlando, Florida. And now it's time for some audio sunshine. Thanks for tuning in again, everybody. And whether you're listening on iTunes or at noiseofthenorth.com, really appreciate the support and hope you guys are all enjoying the podcast as much as I am getting them out to y'all twice monthly. Feels good, I'll tell you. 34 episodes now, and today's is another special one for me. Although, somehow, they all feel pretty special. Today's guest is one of my oldest friends in the world, a guy who has no doubt helped me get to where I am today. Through introducing me to industry heads to just letting me be around for some of what I would consider moments of history within Toad Water Sports. Today's guest is none other than the 2002 overall pro tour and world champion Eric Ruck. I remember the day Ruck got his first wakeboard back on Lake Mary in Twin Lakes, Wisconsin. I remember him learning and what I believe to be innovating tricks in the mid-90s. I was there the day he won Worlds in Orlando, 2002. I was sitting at the table at the Wake Awards when his name was announced for Trick of the Year. I've watched him transition from pro rider to his new role a little bit more behind the scenes at Ronix Wake still helping push the sport by introducing wakeboarding to more people through social media each and every single day. I lived with Ruck for seven years and stood in his wedding in 2009. So yeah, this episode is special. I think you're all going to like it as we touch on a lot of stuff, but I really enjoyed hearing some live tunage, some crunchy jams, the music. Ruck not only talks about his career on the water, we also talk music, history, Star Wars, and more. One last thing, as this episode posts close to the start of the year, I wanted to mention some of the other podcasts I personally listened to. I wanted to mention this on the Byerly episode, but uh, totally forgot. Beautiful thing. I'm coming at you two times a month, so I've got plenty of opportunities to talk to you. So these are some podcasts you might enjoy, maybe not. Uh, You know, check them out if you have a chance. But uh, if you're interested to hear what the noise of the North himself listens to on the reg, Here goes. The Nerdist with Chris Hardwick. I've been a fan of this dude since his days on MTV Singled Out and appreciate his work ethic. Uh, Big fan, tons of episodes. Make sure you guys have a listen. Tons of stars. I promise you, you'll find one that you like. I was also turned on to Go Bayside, a podcast about Saved by the Bell. Yep, I said it, Saved by the Bell. Comedian April Richardson breaks down every episode of Saved by the Bell with a special comedian guest. It's in-depth, and if you grew up watching Saved by the Bell like I did, and I'm sure a lot of you did too, then you'll love it. 
Last but not least, I can't get enough of the Art of Wrestling podcast with Colt Cabana. Many of you know I'm a wrestling nerd, always have been, and will be forever. This is the podcast that inspired me to start the Golden Mike podcast. And if you are at all into the world of pro wrestling, then listen. If not, it may not be for you. But much respect to Colt Cabana. I actually met him at a small independent wrestling show in downtown Chicago this last Thanksgiving. Really cool dude. It was great to catch up. He was shooting a DVD, recording a podcast in wrestling. So he's a man who wears many, many hats. It was fun chatting with him. And maybe one day I'll even get him on the show. You never know. He wouldn't be the only wrestler I plan on having on the Golden Mike podcast either. Uh, Watch out later this year. I'm hoping to sit down with former Byerly Wakeboard Pro Team rider and now wrestling champion Wes Briscoe. So that should be a good time. Just a few more words before we get into it, guys. As always, the Golden Mike podcast is brought to you free twice monthly online at noiseofthenorth.com or available on iTunes through the podcast app. So be sure to subscribe and help us out by rating and reviewing the show. To keep this podcast no charge to you, the listener, I'd like to thank the sponsors of the show. SeaDeck Marine Products, Performance Ski and Surf, Woodrow Sustainable Optics, and Boulder Boats. If you're interested in advertising on the Golden Mike podcast, email me at goldenmike.noiseofthenorth.com, subject advertising. I'm on social media, so follow me on Instagram at DanoTMano, on Twitter at TheDanoTMano, and at the Golden underscore Mike. And be sure to like the Golden Mike podcast on Facebook. All right, that's it. The moment you've all been waiting for. I'll be right back with Eric Ruck here on the Golden Mike podcast. Boulder Boats is your Southwest connection to Malibu and Axis Boats and offers the largest selection of pre-owned towboats in the world. With two locations serving the Las Vegas, Nevada and Phoenix, Arizona areas, they'll blow your mind with their large inventory of new and used boats. Aside from offering everything you need to get on the water this year, Boulder Boats takes top honors in customer service. From start to finish, the crew will make you feel like family. They accept trades and offer shipping worldwide. Boulder Boats is always looking for gently used boats, so don't gamble with your time on the water this year. Check out boulderboats.com for the sure win. I'm Eric Rook, and you're listening to the Golden Mike Podcast. This guy's good. Rook, you have like a radio voice when the headphones are on. Thanks. So, here it is, episode number 34, Eric Ruck, the Golden Mike Podcast, in five Four. Ooh, that was that was Wayne Wayne's World ish, wasn't it, Rock? Very smooth, very smooth. Yes, you, you like that? I did. The countdown. We do that every time we start. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I dig that. Beautiful, ladies and gentlemen. If you are tuned in right now, this is the Golden Mike Podcast, as you guys already know. And my special guest today happens to be one of my oldest and closest friends, probably in the top three uh, longest people I've known that are still a part of my life, Mister Eric Ruck. Eric Ruck with a K. What's up, Ruck? Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for having me. Well, once again, I don't really have a studio right now, so pretty much. Every one of my guests' houses or boats or something turns into a studio, so this is perfect. Right, right, right. You pretty much have... Well, this is this is your man cave. Is that what you would consider this room? Well, I more or less consider this the Zen Den. The Zen Den. So this is just 
a third garage that you have, right? No, it's just a, a set, it's just you know a smaller garage attached to my normal normal garage. And I know a lot about this. You and I were roommates for a long time. I, I yep. lived here with yep. you when you bought the house. Yeah, yeah. This room has transitioned many, many times over the years. I think it's been a bunker for your brother. Yep, it's a bunker. Sometimes, you know, you just got to put Mark in here. Yeah, you got to put your brother in here. I know uh, at one time you, at one time when you and uh, Joy, who's now your wife, uh, your relationship got really serious and we had to kind of mellow things out in the house and in the backyard and you'd tell me and my friends if we were going to be uh, causing ruckus to hang out in this garage to, to take it in yeah, the little and, garage yeah and then what happened what did we do uh well someone who is still uh never really pinpointed uh broke a window in the garage and uh had to put an end to that yeah that was a long time ago that can you believe that was probably almost 10 years ago at this point i'm gonna have to say it was probably a solid 10 years for sure well, just so you know, yes, I remember that night, and yes, there was a, a party going on in this room, but I, I will be honest, I have no clue who broke that window, how it got done, but at least we fixed it, right? Correct. So Correct. That's what, uh, that's, that's what's most important. So, it's a big week for you when we're recording this. Star Wars just came out, and you're a huge Star Wars fan. That is correct, Dan. That is correct. So, how was the new movie? It was incredible. It was incredible. I mean, you know, I can't really... Uh... Not gonna give out any spoilers. Not gonna not gonna give any spoilers. But it is, uh, you know, it's uh, one of those movies that uh, you just sit and when you're done, you're like, that was that was great. It was it, it definitely it was it was everything I hoped it to be. You know what I mean? It, it was truly Star Wars. It wasn't like you know like four, five, and six were obviously what everyone knows as Star Wars, and then when they came out with one, two, and three. It was cool because, you know, it filled you in with, like, backstory and really knowing what was going on. But, I mean, this new one really, I mean, they hit it on the head. It is it is Star Wars. You you were excited about 1, 2, and 3 when they first came out because I do remember you getting a t-shirt right away because we were, you were just out of high school. When, no, I was still in high school. You were in high school when, when, when the first one came Phantom out, I, I was, uh, I'm pretty sure I was a senior in high school. Okay, so, but were you impressed with 1, 2, and 3? Uh, I was... The the movie itself, I was impressed with uh, three, but the first two, I mean, this it was you know in the earlier years of CGI and it was still looking a little fake. And that's the one thing that's cool about the new one is that they've made it real filmy and made it old school. Used robots. They, I mean, some of the explosions have a little CGI in them, but they used real explosions and just added a little bit. So it still feels. It feels more like it was filmed in the seventies than you know than it was filmed in nowadays time. Are you one of those guys that were like super bent out of shape with George Lucas after when they re-released um, four was it four, four five, five and six? No, I actually have those. I mean, they put a little extra here and there. But, but you they, have the originals still too on VHS back in Wisconsin. I'm that, sure that is correct. So you can always go back to those, right? Yep. Yep. And and your brother and mom are still watching VHSs back in Twin Lakes, right? I'm sure my mom still pops in a VHS. Why wouldn't she, right? Yeah. Okay, um, Scott Byerly, who was on the podcast uh, on the last episode, and did you know that he actually was at the original Star Wars, like when it first came out, he got to see it in the movie theater in sure. 1977. Heck yeah. Which I thought was pretty cool. Now, 
the the next movies came out throughout the eighties. Did you ever go and see one of the movies in the theater? I never saw them in the theater. Uh, probably the one that I could have seen if I was old enough to remember would be Return of the Jedi. But uh, I do have to say I never remember a time in my life where Star Wars wasn't something that you know I was into. Have you have you wrote a song about Star Wars or anything? No, I never actually wrote a song, any songs about it. It's just something, you know, I mean, kind of, you know, life philosophies and the way I look at things. It definitely had a major impact on my personality and the way I look at life. And, uh, you know, it's, it's basically, I mean, the truest, most ultimate analogy for good and evil and uh, a way to look at life. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I, I've watched, I've watched every single movie at least three or four times. So I know, but you've probably watched each of those double that that's you know that those movies were just like you know sick day movies i'd watch them all yeah well you guys didn't have you didn't have cable growing up either no so so i watched the crap out of some vhs vhs movies and then whatever was on like uh local non-cable television right wgn wgn it's a beautiful thing so your your wife joy she waited in line all day on the premiere right you guys saw it day one her shane and shane's girlfriend uh, Paige went and stood in line from nine in the morning, and then I met them about three. I had to take care of some stuff. Do people get mad at you for budging into line no, with because, them? Or? No, because there was a lot of people that saved. I mean, you know, people had to go to work and do their thing. But this isn't the first time either that I know, because I used to live here, and I remember the uh, whole Twilight thing. Well, jo- Joy's a fangirl. She waits in line. She's not afraid. She's a fangirl. She she dives in head first, right? When, uh, yeah. For things like this. And uh, speaking of Joy, you and her. You know, when this releases, it's obviously a little bit further out, but a month and a half ago or so, you guys had your wedding anniversary, right? That is correct. And I know that because I was in the wedding, which was a great day here in your backyard in Orlando, Florida. And how many years is it now? Uh, six. Yeah, but you, and, and six years married, but then you guys were together for quite a We were a together bit. for about seven years, I'd say, before we got married. So yeah, we're, you know, rounding 13. I think this spring will be 14 years. Very, very good. All right, man. Well, I'm excited to have you on here. At this point, anybody who's listening probably thinks this is a Star Wars podcast. Uh, it would be cool if it was, but it it's not. It would be cool if it was, but it's not. There's so There are so many podcasts out there. The one thing that this world is missing, though, a wakeboarder's take on Star Wars. I think I can I'd get at least... I'd be glad to do it. I'd be glad. You know, you get me, Shane, Sean Murray. Scott Byerly. Scotty, yeah, I didn't realize that Scotty B was a Star Wars fan, but, yeah. you know... Yes. He is. I can see. I can see it. I'm not surprised. Well, unfortunately, this is not a Star Wars podcast. Uh, but um, you know, we're we're going to talk a little bit about Toad Water Sports Ruck, and you and I are alike in the way that we both dabbled in a little bit of everything, a la Toad Water Sports. And I met you in the early 1990s skiing with the Aquanuts, which is a small show ski team, which I've talked about. Many, many times when I started, you were already uh, a member and a guy who is, although young, quite respected by many. But I want to start from the beginning. How were you introduced into water skiing? Uh, just because my parents grew up, uh, you know, they they had they both lived in Chicago. They had summer homes in Wisconsin and uh, just grew up loving water skiing, loving uh, lake life. Yeah. And, hashtag. Uh, hashtag. 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 And uh yeah, so I mean, for me, I'm just like Star Wars. Never, never remember a time in my life where I wasn't on the water all summer long. And some of my first memories are on a boat, and you know, 
Well, I'm going to date us right now because it was, I'm going to say 20 plus years ago, because I don't want to really make us sound too old, when you and I first met. And you, you... Well, let's see. What year were you born, Dan? I was born in 82. So I met you in 92, because I remember for sure that you were 10 years old. Wow. How do you remember that? I don't know. That but is crazy. I do remember, and you showed up with an Italian soccer hat on. Yeah, you guys, you guys must have thought I was a real big soccer fan at the time. I, th- I thought I thought you were super into soccer. <laughs> You're like this guy must love it. And then it' pretty funny. Come to find out, I can't even kick a ball. No, well, well, somebody got you the hat. Yeah, I liked it though. It was a real nice hat. Rook, when I met you, you were already like a really good water skier. Um, in the ski show, you were doing helicopters off the ski ramp. You were pretty solid on a trick ski. This is in the early nineties. Is at this point now, there's guys that were like your age, 11 or 12 years old, that are doing flips now. But back in the early 90s, if you could even do one flip on a trick ski, it was it was pretty impressive. And I always remember you, you were like right right there, and it wasn't long after that you actually did start landing those. But uh, did you ever did you, like think that you were possibly going to be a professional water skier? Um, no, actually, no, nope. I never really thought I was going to be a professional water skier at. At that point in my life, to tell you the truth, I wanted to be an extreme uh, snow skier. Okay, and what, what exactly would an extreme snow skier be? Well, you know, I, I guess it's not really a term that's used these days, but I know, you know, like back in the day, you know, Glenn Plakes, you know, you ever, ever you know, ever see the movie Ski Patrol? Right. So uh, Aspen Extreme. So you weren't into like going around turn slow. No, no, no. You know, maybe a little some mogul runs, dropping off some drops. Right. Busting out a heli. Yeah. Maybe a seven twenty if you got lucky. Right, right, right. And you used to do some sevens, yeah. Some twisters, daffies. Right. Spread eagle. A little spread eagle. Maybe a twister spread. Maybe uh some rough terrain, perhaps. Extreme yeah, rough skiing. terrain, you know. All right. All right. So um so you, I, I actually always, for some reason, thought that you kind of envisioned yourself kind of going in that pro uh, water skier uh, direction. Nope. I probably realized, I mean, that was just all, you know, we skied and show skied and that was just fun because, you know, we had a good group of friends and it was fun to be on the water all, all summer. And uh, I don't think I ever really envisioned a real future until I started wakeboarding. Right. Sure. Sure. But you did take the skiing stuff pretty serious. I mean, you were always progressing like at, at water skiing. I mean, and obviously until even when you got on a wakeboard, you were still kind of progressing in the ski show, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, uh, I always, you know, I was always trying to get upside down on something. So. Right. Sure. Yeah. You, you did have a different approach to your trick skiing and stuff like, well, I, like, my dad always wanted me to work on toe turns, and, you know, it was all about, you know, being on your game, like, uh, what what uh, what uh did Rami always say? A slide slide? No, just, uh, um, the, you know, <laughs> you he, go was, back to the he basics. was all about the basics, <laughs> the fundamentals, you know what I mean? And, like, after a while, I was just like, and then, you know, you started seeing just little glimpses of, like, Eric Perez and all these guys on, you know what I mean, doing some wakeboard stuff and you're like what is this and then all of a sudden it, it just i realized that i never was trick skiing on a trick skiing i was wakeboarding on a trick ski you know what i mean you were doing big you were always airing you were always yeah. grabbing you were always doing back scratchers yeah. and stuff like that so i mean because you know i i was more into growing up more than anything i was probably more into skateboarding and then 
you know, I started out snow skiing and then, you know, as when I started wakeboarding, then I started snowboarding and then I just realized the whole time I was more or less a, a wakeboarder trapped on a trick ski. Right. Sure. And you still actually dabble a little bit in trick ski, not traditional style, but you'll still get on it like once a year, right? Oh yeah. Whenever I'm up at radar, uh, it's always fun. I always have Sully go out and give me a quick little uh, trick rip. Yeah. You know, I remember Russell Gay, who's like one of the most, obviously you know who he is, but for any of the listeners, he's, you know, an old school trick skier, actually an old school wakeboarder too. A, I, I Don't quote me, but he could possibly be the first world champion wakeboarder. No, that was, for sure it was Eric Perez. He but was the first world Eric champion Perez oh, in was. Hawaii, in Hawaii. Yeah. Well, he was the... Russell he Russell was, was like to do for seven twenty maybe. No, 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 no. That was no, Corey Picos. Yeah, that's probably Corey, Corey Picos. Yeah. Russell definitely did do something before anybody else, but I remember seeing some of the old videos of the of the Masters and seeing uh, Russell Gay. But Russell Gay came out and and watched watched us one day. He, we were doing some prototyping or something with Colin Harrington at the time. This is oh, yeah, over ten he was years ago. For Masterline way back in those days. Yep, exactly. And you went out and busted a front mobe on a trick ski for him or something and he yes, like lost his chance yeah he wanted me to sit because he, for a new trick to be entered into trick ski you know oh, excuse me contest uh trick skiing um it's got to be submitted and you know approved go through the whole process of everyone going so, hey, so hey, even hey, though you hey, even hey. though you landed the the front mob on a trick ski in like 1999 it that never <laughs> happened right <laughs> it's never considered a trick not in the trick skiing world right right so it basically didn't happen yeah, I, guess. I mean, you did it, but in the world of tricks, you just, yeah, you know, I think in, it was probably like around 2006 that the front mode became a trick. Is it actually a trick now? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it is. I, they even have like a double roll as a trick on a trick ski now, but oh, that's cool. you're only allowed to do six flips in a, in a trick ski run though, in your pass, huh. which is cool. You know, I don't well, really got to get back to the basics, Danny. Danny, get back to the basics. Don't. My no dad, sitting on the gunnel. My dad would say, no sitting on the gunnel. He'd say, Danny, go out there, no flips, no 360s, side slide. Uh, I remember. <laughs> you remember the good old days. Uh, uh, I do. <laughs> Ruck, I never, like getting to how you started wakeboarding, I never remember you wanting a wakeboard. I don't remember you ever being like, oh man, I want a wakeboard so bad. I just remember you coming home to the lake one day with one and uh, I was just kind of wondering, was it? So did you know you wanted this? Was it a spur of the moment buy, or did you did you have to like fight with your folks to get one or no, anything we, like that? Uh, one time, Anthony Monaco came back from uh, Florida for a couple weeks, and was, he came back and he had a, a Conley Razor. Remember that one? That the one that almost looked like a twin tip. Yeah, I have. I had oh, yeah, one. That's right. You did have one. Yep. And uh, I gave that a little go, and then I actually went out on the boat. Remember uh, Summer Lorenz? Yeah. Her brother had one, and we used to keep our boat, you know, right next to theirs, and uh, she had it, and she's like, you want to go out and wait for it? And we were like, yeah, let's let's give her a go. So I went out, and then after that, I was like, Mom, we got to get one of these. So when you got on that wakeboard, did you know right away, like, hey, this is something that well, I, I want to do know, seriously? It was, just, or? It, it was just one of those things. I got on it, and like, you know what I mean? Like could do threes and and within a couple you know rut goes i could do a back roll and it was just something that was uh just just felt right became more or less an obsession yeah you were you were out there a lot did your your dad accept wakeboarding like right away or did he uh 
Uh, no, he wanted me to just, you know, like, I mean, your dad and my dad were pretty much on the on the same boat back in those days. My my dad pretty much was convinced that trick skiing was the end all to the end all. And, uh, well, just because I grow, you know, the all the people that we watched, the Dunhamans and Kevin Michaels, Anthony Monaco, Jeff Welling. I mean, these are show skiers. These aren't even yeah, real yeah, these, professional these, three hunters. No, no, no. These are show skiers. And all those guys, you know, they trick skied more. Show ski tricking is more just fun tricking. You know what I mean? It's not taking everything so seriously and all that. So... You know, growing up and me growing up, that's what we watched. Well, like the the coolest part of the show for me was trick skiing and the jumping. You know what I mean? Yeah. I really couldn't give a care about really any p- other part of the show for the most part, to tell you the truth. But uh, yeah, so that's like what we watched. So that's what my dad and we all thought was cool. So then when we started getting on wakeboarding and, you know, when it first happened, it was just like, you know, they all just thought it was just kind of a, like kneeboarding. They thought it was going to be a dying fad. A dying fad. Yeah. And so we went to this this show ski thing in uh, where is it where was that Dan uh, Miami of Ohio yeah uh, Damfest Damfest sure and uh, Zane Schwenk was there and Zane Schwenk went out and just launched a couple of huge railies and some big stuff out into the flats and my dad was like oh maybe this is pretty cool he was sold I was like see I told you but I remember a pretty cool or I don't know if it was a cool story at the time but to, to hear or to, to think back upon it I remember right when the twin tips started coming out you were still riding what was it like a hyperlight XP or something was your first board it, it was yeah and that was a single tip. Yeah, it was still surf style back in those days. Three fins, sandal wrap bindings. Yeah, but I always, I always just rode it with one fin, one center fin. Well, it it was it maybe a year later. Finally, like twin tips started coming out, or the flight sixty nine was out, and you had a pretty funny story. Your dad like made you go out and like learn some new trick ski maneuvers before you get it right. I think it was like wake toe turns or something. I don't know. I mean, I might be off. It was a long time ago. I can't remember if that was for the twin tip. I think it was something else. No, I think to tell you the truth, I had to learn, to tell you the truth, to get my first wakeboard, the XP, I think I had to learn uh, a wake toe turner. Okay, so so moving on to like the Flight 69, how when that Flight 69 came out and you were first able to get on that, how did that change your wakeboarding? Well, I didn't get the, I didn't get the first one, the orange and yellow and red one. I got the that second limited edition one, the the blue and gray one. But weren't those the same? Were they same the shape, same same shape. same shape? But was that the same it year? It came out or? like maybe like six months later or something. Sure, sure. And so, as soon as you got on that board, how quickly did did your wakeboarding change? I mean, it, it definitely progressed a bunch on that board, but it really progressed when I I already could do back rolls. I learned tantrums. I think like frontside back rolls, um, roll the reverts, bunch of stuff. I think then. When I was riding that board is when I met the Bonifays because Betty Bonifay would come to the Aquanuts and, you know, give all the girls swivel lessons. And one year she brought Parks and Shane. And that's when Shane first, when Liquid Force first came out and Liquid Force sent all these boards for Shane to try. And one of them was when they came out with the Liquid Force Fly. Right. Right, yeah, we were there. I remember the I remember the uh, shipment of wakeboards right, right. showing up and... 
and uh, Shane getting on him. The first year we met Shane, though, he was still riding on a, on a Comley, yeah, like a T2 a, or no, something. The dually. Oh, he was riding a dually. The thing weighed more than him. Oh, it was so heavy. It was a tank. It was crazy heavy. Yeah. So basically we're talking right now, as, as far as years go, this is like 95, 96-ish. Oh, no, this is... Um, yeah, yeah, you're probably right, 95-ish. Yeah. 95, 96, yeah, you're right. Mid-90s, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good call, good getting, call. That's get, right, that's right. Getting up there. Uh, hey, I want to touch uh, back on the, the snow thing. You know, the fact that you're from Wisconsin, there's seasons. You got summer, and then you got winter, basically. <laughs> well, fall and spring are really yeah, nice up spring, there, too. Yeah. But you, you did a, you, you mentioned you did a lot of snow skiing. Your brother... Got on a snowboard years before you yeah, did. Yeah, he, he definitely was uh, into snowboarding before I was, yeah. But even when you were wakeboarding, you still never transitioned over to snowboarding until, I mean, a few years after you really, really got into the wakeboard stuff. Like, what kept and you I on the snow skis? Uh, just my friends. I, I, didn't, I didn't start snowboarding until I was in high school. I think once I, when I was in high school, I met a bunch of other dudes that... Uh, all, all were snowboarding, and I still, I mean, I snowboarded with my buddies that were skiing still, too. We kind of had a whole crew. Everyone kind of did what they wanted to in those days. Yeah, it was kind of, I loved being at the snow hills back in those days. We call them snow hills because in Wisconsin, where Ruck grew up, where I grew up, like snowboarding, water skiing, it was... Uh, yeah, he, I wouldn't really classify them as mountains. I mean, it was called a mountain, Wilmot Mountain, right? Wilmot Mountain, yeah. But yeah. Uh, it was three minutes up, 30 seconds down, and that's giving them... Uh, a little extra love over there at yeah. Wilmot. So, all right, guys, well, we're talking like about your high school days right now and something that has always been a constant with you, aside from just your wakeboarding, uh, is your music. And since starting this podcast, I knew I wanted your episode to be something extra special. So I asked if you would play a couple of verses from a few songs of yours that you've written over the years throughout this episode. Uh, you've been in really like three major bands that I can remember since I've known you and although people look at you nowadays and probably say hey this guy's a hippie um, a lot of people don't know that when you were in high school you were in a punk rock band you were really into punk music you were in a band called Sorry for Laughing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I saw you guys play live many many times mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, the mosh pits and whatnot mm -hmm. of course you know I always stayed far away from the mosh pits yes you did and I know you don't do this often, but I asked if you'd play a Sorry for Laughing song for us. So what yeah, do you think? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm just going to play it acoustic. It's not, I mean, obviously it was, we, you know, we weren't like a hardcore punk. We were more like, you know, along the lines of like a Lagwagon-esque right. style. More of like a fat record. We were all super into fat records back in those days. So No facts and all that. So all of the songs you're going to play for us today are going to be acoustic versions or whatever of... I'll some... see what I can do. I haven't played this song probably in 15 years. It's called Trust in You. I think I probably wrote it in maybe 98, somewhere in there. You know, in the age of uh, just figuring stuff out. Right, right. Well, I don't know if they're your golden years. We'll call them your the early days. I'd say more or less the early days, yeah. The early days. All right. Well, let's do this. Is the first. This is the first for the Golden Mike podcast. We we have actually never uh, recorded like music or something. I'm just gonna so. do uh, a verse and a chorus. Cool. I think that'll work. That'd yeah, be sure. Sweet. All right. All right, guys. Well, here it is. This is uh, Eric Ruck playing "Trust in You" by his old high school band. Sorry for laughing.
eons away from us there's life and I don't know if I am right but you know that I have faith in things unseen thoughts above me and you try to wipe my sleigh clean I put trust in you then you played me for a fool I lost faith in you you don't have Haven't played that in a long time. I got kind of got the chills, man. Brings it back to the old days. It does, right? Yeah. How does that feel, man? Ah, uh, yeah, good. Those are those those are that was a really fun band. Like, obviously, you know, in high school, we were just rocking out. But I mean, uh, it was a good band. I mean, we really practiced and uh, we were on our game. And I mean, between. I wrote a lot of the lyrical stuff with a buddy of mine, our drummer, Patrick Joyce, and if kind of read back through some of this stuff, it's pretty deep, compelling stuff. I mean, the music I play right now has nothing to do with deep lyrics. You know, it has to do with just more a musical adventure nowadays, you know what I mean? And most of our lyrics mean basically nothing. What was behind (laughs) that song, Trusting You? Um, It was just a, a phase in my life where I felt like, I don't know, just, uh, you know, believing in something that's greater than you, whatever, whatever, whatever you believe in, just, and, you know, the song's called Trust in You, and just having trust in something that is uh, bigger than you. You're you're a pretty deep high schooler, huh? I was, yeah. Yeah, you, I don't want to... I don't want to out you on this, and I'm not making fun of you by any means, but when I I do re- recall hearing that when like Kurt Cobain died, you like, I was bombed. Yeah, I heard you like like kind of were on your own for a few days or whatever. Didn't come out of your room. Is that true? I you know like I mean obviously you know bands like uh, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and stuff like that. Like that was that was uh, the first era of music that really defined the era I was growing up in and was something that was super relatable. You know what I mean? Like you listen to that stuff and you're like, wow, you know, these, these guys get me. Yeah. Or you get them. I looked at it as like, they get me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know it, you know it. Um, how many songs do you think you've written over the years? I was just actually, when I, I was looking through this, I'll, I have three different notebooks full of scribblings, including some of mine, Inclu- including some of yours. I don't know a lot, a, a lot actually. I've written a lot of music. Probably, mm. I probably can't remember a good majority of them, but well, I'd like to hear some more of the old punk rock stuff from you one of these days. I've been asking you for years, so yeah. even just being able to get that uh, right there is is quite the treat, as I would say. 
and you know it. And so hopefully we're going to get a little bit more from you uh, musically here in a little bit, but we're going to kind of dive back into some some more wakeboard stuff here. And you talked a little bit ago about meeting Shane Bonifame. When we met Shane, he was probably around 9 or 10 years old. It was a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just the name Bonifay, you know, he came into our lives and I already thought, you know, this guy's, you know, pretty much a pro and everybody was kind of giving him the love where we're from. But what was what was your first impression when you met Shane? Uh, I always, I really liked Shane off the bat. We just we we gelled. We've always been, you know, kind of had into the same things. You know, we were we were both people that, you know, together we could there we didn't have our guard up you know what i mean we could nerd out on stuff talk i mean he's a huge star wars fan we were always into the same kind of music um and uh yeah you know i I guess our uh, relationship was always based off of more or less that we could relate to each other more than anything else he he was kind of a little brother to you though too because for sure, for sure. you know it was at a, it was at an age when his mom was still on the road a lot. Parks was just starting to kind of come into Parks his was own. Just, you know, blowing up. The first time I met Parks, I was uh, we were all at uh, where you know where we met Shane. But like I already met Shane, and uh, so we were friends. And like uh, uh, basically, Parks gets out of the car and like Shane runs up. And I go up to Parks and Parks just like looks at me and pretty much like blows me off. I'm just like, this guy's a D-bag, man. Like, what's up with this guy? Yeah, so, and <laughs> it, it's funny because that was actually going to be the next thing that I touched on. <laughs> Growing up, you know, you and I, and I, it's no secret, whatever, we're, we're, we're good friends with Parks. Parks has been on the uh, podcast. Yeah, he's one of my best he, friends. One of your best sure. friends, a very close friend of mine. He has been since the 90s. But, you know, and I'm, it's no secret between us and Parks that there was probably a time when we did not love him. I, was it a jealousy thing? Perhaps. I don't know. Was it the way he tre- acted towards us when he came into oh, town? You know, well, no, he's just like, he's Parks Bonifay. It was right when wakeboarding was a brand new sport, blowing up. I think that could have been the year that, like... He, he uh, won X Games. He won X Games, and he comes and, you know, hangs out with his little brother's buddies, and he's just like, hey, where are the chicks at? Yeah, but you let's, were... Let's go sneak some beers. You were kind of like the hot shot on the water in Twin Lakes at that time. Yeah, but and but I remember Parks coming out but, and getting on a hey, trick ski but, and yeah, well PB can always slate it. I, there, I I never had any, there was never any you know thinking that I could was trying to be better than you know on the water or anything like that. It's just uh, we were good on the water there, but we never acted like that. I mean, all the people like I mean not not to be whatever, but we could have shredded anybody on the Aquanuts under the table hands down uh, in those days, and me and you. Probably got the least respect out of everybody on the team because we were hanging branches from fishing wire, walking around saying, hmm, isn't this, isn't <laughs> like, you know, playing pranks on people, you know? Yeah, we never, we never took it really serious. No, yeah, playing pranks and, you know, just overusing the word definitely in conversations and... Acting like little punk kids. And, and you know... Acting like 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds. And, and just doing, you know, doing our own thing. We never really got into freaking thinking that anything was too serious or too big. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've, you've always been pretty level-headed about what, what you do and what you can do. You know, you've never been the guy who's been like, oh, although I'm the best in the city, the state, the nation, the world, <laughs> you know, you won the world, you know, you, you've never been one to like gloat about it or anything like that. So, and I guess that's, that's never uh, really changed. But 
kind of getting back to like the whole parks thing. So in it, when you were in high school and stuff, you know, definitely you'd still not really known parks that well, but you started going down south. Yeah, to- yeah. Me and PB became friends when I started going down to Florida and spending more time just like just chilling with him. So you started going down to like Boniface Ski School to to train wakeboarding in the winters during high school. How important uh, was that to your career? Oh, huge. I mean, I learned, I remember one, one, uh, the first spring break I went down there and skied with, uh, Scott Hussey was the, he was the teacher, the instructor in those days. I think I went down there knowing a handful of inverts and probably learned every single basic invert fronts. I mean, I, I left like learning like 10 to 15 tricks. It was crazy. Sure, sure. And uh, do you do you remember kind of what year this was? Uh, my sophomore year in high school. So I, if we can do the math, probably 96, 97, something like that. Yeah. It was a good old days. Small wakes still at the, uh, still small Excuse wakes me. at the time. Um, yeah, that was before, that was when the X-Star, I th- might have, uh, no, I don't even think it was X. That was still when it was. Yep, it was definitely still before the switch to uh, V drives for sure. Yeah, I definitely remember. But that original, that original X Star wasn't a V drive. That original uh, X Star. It wasn't. Are you no, sure? yeah, it was. It was the same X- as same as your boat. It was the oh, two hundred five. The two hundred five. You're right. right remember right, the right, solid right, right. green yep. one? Mm-hmm. You sunk one almost. I, how did I sink one? Uh, you and uh, Chris Trulson. Don't you remember? You guys got one from like Munson or whatever. They sent up an X Star. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We forgot to put a plug in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, you know how many times I've done that since? Well, it's funny because I was talking to Scott Byerlein and I was asking him about how he would weight his boat and he'd be like, you know, pull the plug. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a pretty, pretty uh, old school way of filling the, oh. filling the boat up with. Uh, people weren't making stuff. No, yeah, no, you're right. Some people were just filling water beds up and throwing those in the back of the boats, um, uh, concrete buckets and whatnot, whatever it took. So after a couple of years at like Boniface, I do remember, I always felt like there was a time when you were landing tricks in Twin Lakes that maybe a lot of people weren't landing yet. Tricks that kind of stand out to me was Moby Dicks. Um, I, I, I've always told people that I, in my beliefs that you were probably one of the first guys doing a Moby Dick because I remember you and me used to call it a poop smasher because of the, <laughs> because of the way that you would land. No, and, you called it that. Yeah. You know, yeah, I did. But a, a trick that we that we both uh, named together was the Goatman. Yep, yep. And that was called a switch roll to blind. That, that was, was a switch roll to blind. Yep. But that was also called no, 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 a the, the Skeletor, goat. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Chase, I think I, but I think the Goatman might have been a regular roll to blind, or was it a switch? Roll I think to it blind? was switch roll to blind. Was okay. the Goatman? See, the funny thing was, like, I started like learning these tricks, and then like. A month later or two months later in Wakeboard Magazine, there'd be a picture or a sequence or all of a sudden you'd hear about someone doing it. I was like, man, I thought I did that first. Uh, so so th- It was probably all around the same time. It was just when a, a major, I mean, that's when wakeboarding really started evolving trick-wise and people figuring out, you know, I mean, back in when wakeboarding first started, I mean, there wasn't even anything like a blind 180 or backside 180 wasn't even... I mean, you know, it wasn't I mean, a trick. Some, something so simple. Yeah, it wasn't even a trick. People just started figuring out that, like, holy cow, you can 
really do anything on this thing. It reminds me, you know, uh, Todd Brendel, who's, uh, you know, obviously uh, a guy who who's no longer with us, but there's always been this this uh, this this kind of like verbal battle who who landed the big worm for nobody even does the big worm anymore but big worm maneuver on a wakeboard was it uh todd rendell and then you know ryan date this guy ryan davis here in orlando always like well i may have landed at first but i'll never say it because todd you know is gone but you know that, that, that's one of the things that i always wondered with you is maybe it, you didn't get credit for some of the tricks because you weren't in the scene and also you're not a very like I, I I can't imagine you showing up at 98 Nationals and being like, hey, everybody, I landed the switch roll to blind first. It's called the Goatman, not the Skeletor. <laughs> <laughs> the Goatman was named after Goat Boy. Yeah. Remember on Saturday Night Live, Jim Brewer? Yep, it's because my dad could never get the guy's name <laughs> right. Yeah, because your dad just seemed to always, would, wouldn't ever call him Goat Boy. No. He was just like, no, no. Do the Goatman. Do the Goatman. Yeah. Oh. Um so still talking about still talking about the old days, um, you know, I know that you've had a long road with sponsors and it goes all the way back to your first sponsor, who I believe was Sage Wakeboards, which which I'm bummed that they didn't stick around. That would have been a perfect fit for you. My my first sponsor was Munson Ski and Inboard Water Sports. Right. Uh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're exactly. And they're still around Munson Ski up mm-hmm. in uh up in Chicago land. But when you started getting sponsored by board companies, you started with, and you can correct me. Sage was my first board sponsor. Yeah. So you started with Sage and then, and then Sage went out of business and full tilt picked you up. Correct. And then from full tilt, you went to blindside. Well, to tell you the truth, after Sage, I started riding a double up. Oh really? And like, uh, rode double up for a little bit, met Greg Nelson, but what I was doing, you know, there was all free ridey and doing their thing, and I was doing a lot of more technical tricks and contests were important to you at that right, time. Exactly, I remember you liked the old double up board too. It was a good board. Yeah, but then then uh, Full Tilt came on board and they offered you a great contract. I remember yeah. you being very excited about that. Then they went under and you got on Blindside, and then they went under and Correct. i believe they also kind of left you hanging there if, if i'm not mistaken then i went to hyperlight but you you won the worlds and the pro tour as a free agent right you weren't even technically well, sponsored i hyperlight was giving me stuff uh pob was giving me stuff in those days and paul o'brien yep yep and uh i was living with parks at the time and uh it was it happened in a weird time of the year, so basically they were flowing me stuff, and then you know when it was after that season, we got everything started, and then fully signed with them. Has any? I wonder if anybody's ever won, other than you, has won like a pro, like an because there's only a handful of people that have actually won an overall pro tour title. It's you, Darren Shapiro. Yeah, it, no. Uh, I think there's like six people at this yeah, point. Yeah, but I, there's there's a couple more. Philip won a Worlds and uh, won both. Yeah. in the same exact Phil, year. Darren Shapiro. But what I wonder is how many people have done it while not actually being paid by a proper board company. You know, but yeah, know. obviously, obviously, it was soon after you you linked up with Hyperlight, and then of course now you're with uh, Ronix. But what I was getting at is, what were some of your struggles back in the early days? with board companies um getting them getting them to stay in business when i rode for them <laughs> <laughs> right right 
But you, I mean, you were always kind of taken care of or whatever, as far, you know, as far as boards. And I mean, were you, were you getting a paycheck all the way back into high school and stuff like that from from the board companies, or was it just a uh, flow yeah, thing? I, was, I mean, that's why I could I moved to Florida when I did because I was, my senior year in high school I was already getting paid from full tilt and and it was uh, pretty much you know was getting paid for a full year of just saving, and then I just moved to Florida. Yeah, beautiful. All right, Ruck, if you don't mind, we're going to take a, a quick break right here, uh, get a little word from one of my sponsors. Right on, Dan. Okay, some other cool stuff going down. As you all hopefully know by now, C-Deck is our presenting sponsor, and I'm a huge fan of all they do. I had a chance to stop at the factory recently and watch the operation firsthand. It's so cool to see the biggest manufacturers in the boating industry using C-Deck every day but what I was really excited for were the custom Golden Mike C-Deck pads made especially for me. I want to touch on this real fast as I know a lot of you listeners may have older model boats and are looking to clean them up and maybe give your boat a little makeover moving into the summer of 2016. Well, C-Deck has tons of standard patterns to fit hundreds of boats, but if you're looking for something extra special and maybe one of a kind, C-Deck can custom make whatever you need. Check out the website cdeck.com for all the info there. Enough said. Well, actually, wait. I want to give a couple of the custom pads they made for me away. Check out my Instagram page, guys, at DanoTMano, and find the picture I posted of the three custom CDEC pads. Like the photo and send me an email to goldenmike at noiseofthenorth.com. The first two emails that make me chuckle or feel warm and fuzzy inside I'll ship you the Golden Mike C-Deck pad. You can use it for a cooler or on your boat or in your shower. Whatever you want to use it for, I don't really mind. Uh, just get me that email. And now back to the Golden Mike podcast with my guest, Eric Ruck. How did you get into the competitive side of, of wakeboarding? Uh, there's uh, There started to be some local contests in you know, the Wisconsin area, actually up at Fort Fremont Marine. And... Uh... When they still have that series of events going they do. on, yeah. Well, they've always been, uh, you know, really pushed uh, wakeboarding. They always had wakeboard Wednesdays, and you know, a bunch of really cool people that uh, just had a passion for the sport and a passion to be on the water. I mean, uh, they were. I mean, they were into barefooting. I mean, they that whole marina goes goes back, you know, in the history of. Uh, Wisconsin uh, water sports for sure. Would you consider like Fort Fremont your first major events or what would what would be like your first? Yeah, my, my first wakeboard contest ever was there. Right. So uh, after the Fort Fremont, what were some of the first events that you started going to as far as like the World Wakeboard Association? Uh, the Cincinnati Open. And that was kind of like a pro wakeboard that tour? Was, that was that was like just like now how you have a, a one event, but it was sanctioned and it was, you know, all the way from pro to... It was like a nationals, but like, you know. And what what did you compete in? Were you in junior men still yeah, at that ju- time? Yeah, junior men's, yeah. Who were some of the guys that you kind of came up with riding with? Uh, Ryan Wolf, Carlos. Uh, that was where I met Matt Staker. Um, who else was riding? Those, oh, the Kennedy brothers back in the day. Um, obviously, Shane. Um, a lot of names that really aren't around. Uh, yeah, the Kennedy brothers, it. They were they were good riders back in the day. Uh, Carlos Rivera, he was a badass. Um, uh, let's see who else was there. 
There was, I mean, if if you looked at the the riding order from that contest, it's crazy how many people. I think Andrew Carnes was there. Um, a lot of old oh, names. The McKees, Billy, and Jeff. Sure. Um, These are guys that were like riding with you, but now in well, the- Jeff Jeff was. Uh, was younger than us, but Billy, his brother, he he was always right in junior men's all the way through. These are me. these are the guys who are like your age, but at that time you were still like already you know through the wakeboard videos looking up to guys like Scott Byerly and Greg Nacrass oh, and yeah, and, sure. and they were I'm sure they were all competing at this event as well. Uh, I don't think Byerly was ever there, but like a lot of the other guys were. Um, yeah, a lot. I don't know, all the old schoolers. So. Kobe Mikasic and Chris Bischoff were some of your early mentors, and I remember them kind of cruising through sure. Twin Lakes. How did you end up linking up with them? Uh, for, because of Full Tilt, because Kobe rode for Full Tilt, and then they did, Kobe and Bish did the Fantastic Voyage, the bus tour, and uh, I just, uh, you know, became friends, how did, how did they pick you, though? How did they pick you? Because you, well, were, you well, because, got to go on the road with them. Because I, I got... I got to, you know, hang with Kobe a bunch because of Full Tilt, and then I got to hang with Bish a lot because of Kobe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we just kind of, I started traveling with them, and uh, they kind of took me under their wing, and I was like their little brother, and they pretty much took me everywhere, man. They, they I, I went everywhere with them on the bus, and I mean, did did all the, all the fun stuff. They took me to my first nudie bar, got drunk all around the world with them. You know all the all the stuff that you're not supposed to do, but you know they taught they taught they taught you how to do it in class. Though I mean, there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. There's a time to do it and there's a time not to do it. Right. And the good thing about everything you know that I look back look back at is that you know those guys taught me how to be a pro and know when and when not to do things and how to talk to people and how to re- represent myself and. And, uh, you know, not be an idiot. I always said, Bish, hey, if you think I'm being an idiot, tell me. And he goes, well, Rick, I'm gonna, you don't got to worry about that because I'm going to let you know right away. He'll still, and he'll and, still and let he'll you still know. he'll still let you know when you're being an idiot. <laughs> but do, does our industry lack that, though, nowadays? Do we have people, like, who, who are, do, okay, I, I look at this. Would your career have been the same if Kobe and Bish didn't take you under their wing? Definitely not. No, I definitely, I, I mean, I owe those guys so much, so much. And just, like, the camaraderie and, like, just the people that I've met because of being on the road with them is, you know, some people I'm still great friends with that I met, you know, you know, almost 20 years ago. Sure. Sure. When, when do you think, when do you think it was that the wakeboard world kind of took notice of Eric Rock? Ah, in the late 99, 2000. And especially, you know, leading up, I, I was starting to, get some good mag- magazine coverage and then obviously what really blew all you know my whole crew up was obviously you know pointless okay and we're and we're definitely going to um we're definitely going to get to to the pointless stuff here when did you move to florida where did you move and who did you move in with i moved to florida september 18th 1999 I drove down with a buddy of mine, Chris Trollson, and I moved in with Dean Lavelle, and he lived in uh, Lake Alfred, which was right down the road from Shannon Parks. Dean was a little bit older than you. Yep. Um, 
you had already obviously you were cool. I, I already had a full season on the pro tour and everything at that point. Well, and obviously you're a guy who can kind of you're young. You're just out of high school, but obviously you're one of those uh, people who you know meshes well with with older with older people. You know what I mean? People who are older. You had the respect and everything. But how how was it that you ended up with Dean Lavelle? Because knowing you. Uh, in your lifestyle, it, it just seems like a little bit different. A little odd combo? Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to move to Florida as soon as, uh, you know, right before Surf Expo, after that first tour season was over. And uh, we, were, we were at a contest, and Dean was talking to myself and my parents, and he's like, hey, man, uh, looking for a roommate. It'd be nice to have a young guy, you know? And he obviously knew that I was good friends with Parks and Shane, and I wanted to move down to be around Parks and Shane, obviously. And uh, he's like, yeah, basically, he was like, hey, I got a room for rent if you want it. And I was like, yeah, cool. And then, you know, and, and, you know, because he was an older dude, I think he was, you know, in his later 20s at that point. And, uh, I think it uh, was a little bit more reassuring to my parents for me to move in with, you know, someone that was a little bit more, uh, maybe slightly responsible. Sure. Slightly (laughs) responsible. You say that and then uh, you pull up to Dean's house back in in 1999. He's got a 15 foot uh, motorcycle ramp uh, being built out there. Right. So (laughs) pretty responsible. How different was Polk County, Florida? Versus like Twin Lakes, Wisconsin, because Twin Lakes isn't a huge town. Yeah, they're they're both small towns, but you go to, from a small town, you know, growing up in a small town in Wisconsin, and then go to a small town in in uh, Central Florida. It was a little bit of a culture shock in the beginning, just you know, a little different way of life. But you know, you adapted. Yeah, you, you gotta you gotta evolve. You know, did you know that you were going to be living in like? Do you do you foresee yourself living down here in Florida the rest of your life or? Um, I don't see myself living anywhere that's cold. I'll tell you that much. And and that is understandable, my friend. And I, I'm the same way. But did like did you know you know 15, 16 years ago when you first moved down here that this is where you would be no, settling? I, I kind of thought you know oh uh, you know give this a go, be a nice little run for a couple of years, see what's going on. Never realized that you know, however many years, what is it? 16, 17, 17 years, years. 17 years later. Wow. Where has the time gone, my friend? I don't know. I have no idea. Well, it was in those early days that we were talking about that the Pointless Posse started. Uh, do you remember how it all started? I do. Just uh, sitting around, hanging with Shane, just coming up with ideas. I mean, that's all we did. Shane, Francois. In the very beginning, Shane didn't want Parks to be in Pointless. It was really funny. Uh, how did how did that all go like how like, did that all go down Shane wanted like Fran- he wanted it was like Shane Francois myself Danny um Sean Watson like oh, oh yeah obviously Sean Watson in the what in those uh, when we were talking about early contest junior men's Sean Watson was always there um uh yeah you, I mean Chad Sharp obviously he was in it off the bat I don't know and then you know cuz Parks and Shane always had a little bit of a rivalry especially as they kind of went through that you know Mid teenage, later teenage years. Yeah. But, uh, when did that die down for Shane and Parks? It has it. No, oh, yeah, for sure. They're totally cool now. 
I mean, but, but it, they were always cool. They just had, you know, a brotherly rivalry and. But it always seemed like Shane and Parks were just so different on oh, the exa- water. Well, they, well, exactly. That's and that's what's that's to tell you the truth. How I think really they did uh, kind of really start learning to respect it. Parks learned to respect Shane is that like they were so different and Shane just had his own thing going on and really became a super influential, you know, styly rider doing his own thing and you know. You guys had like a healthy balance of, and you know, obviously, if anybody's ever seen the movie Incomplete, you guys did not keep it uh, secret at all. You you guys pretty much had a healthy balance of partying and wakeboarding in the movie Incomplete. Was was that the end goal? Just make a movie, or what was the, what was the goal for for Pointless? We wanted to make a movie with the most progressive riding that could be done at the time. You know what I mean? And obviously, that showcased our lifestyle too. And I mean, we were. 17 to probably 20-year-old kids, you know what I mean? And we we're having a blast. Yeah. Tra- traveling the country, traveling the world. With a nice camera. Yeah, I mean, we were just doing our thing. And it was it was something that wasn't even necessarily thought about. It's just what we were doing. I think it's kind of cool, though, because looking at Pointless, you wouldn't have expected um, that you guys all would have been, or a majority of you guys would have been uh, good contest riders, you know, because you well, guys... Con- contest riding was what wakeboarding was. So we, in the process of doing what we were doing, I think we kind of revolutionized contest riding because when Pointless really blew up is when, you know, we started getting more obstacles and more, you know, more of the percentage of what you were doing was based off of style and... uh you know, you guys threw away the attack more sheets. Or less cre- yeah, more or less creativity and and doing your own thing and representing who you are on the water rather than having a list of tricks that whoever can you know cross them off the list wins. You know what I mean? Well, and you know that's one of the things I always found so interesting about your your two of your biggest wins. I would say would be your win in California to take the overall the pro wakeboard tour back in two thousand and two, and then your win. In Orlando at the Worlds in 2002, you're you didn't run because you had the most technical tricks out there. You rode because you made wakeboarding literally look so amazing and fun. Well, those specifically those two contests that was very well seated in those. There was a couple contests that year, like Indianapolis. If you watch that run, I had to throw down in that one. But I was seated. well. I still think you threw down in those runs. Yeah, but I did. I did way harder tricks in in some of those other contests. Like I was seated well, and I was riding smart, and just watching what other people were doing, and knew what I had to do, and and did it. So at that point, but yeah, I was still having fun. I always had fun. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Well, how how serious did you take contests? I never took them too serious. I mean, it was what it was. The more serious. I ever took wakeboarding contests, the worse I did. The more I just shut my mind off and and did it. Do you think that your mentality then would allow you to win a contest nowadays? No. Well, maybe, I don't know if, if I was that age again, but definitely like in the later part of my career riding in contests, I just started sucking. I, I did try to almost take it more serious. I was like, oh, I'm older now, I got to do this and... The more in my head I was, the the worse I did. Sure. 
back in the early nine or late nineties, early two thousands, when you were kind of a contest killer, you know, you were po- making the podium all the time. Did you always feel like you could win? You know, did you? I mean, I'm guessing you knew you were up there with the top caliber riders, but right in those days, yeah, you definitely like there was a group of us that any given day had the amount of tricks to do what it took to win. Um, but it's kind of funny though that like some of the better contests were contests where you'd be watching and everyone was throwing down because everyone was vibing and like in pointless, like we'd walk up to a contest and just be like, Hey, we're here to put on a demo. You know what I mean? And just be as cocky and, and mess around with everybody. And just, you know, uh, JB Jeff Barton would be the announcer and he would totally egg us on being like, it's a pointless demo. And you know, like that's what it was about. Like, it wasn't like standing on the on the starting dock, everyone just looking at each other, freaking thinking, hmm, oh, that was a tough run. Oh, I, I better recalculate. Like, we were freaking cheering each other on and, and just like... You were there for the fans too, right? We were, oh, yeah. We were always like pumping the fans up, you know, acting like we were chugging beers, driving by the, the fans and... And the funny thing, and like back in those days, it was so different because you'd have like Brett Eisenhower sitting on the starting dock, putting his boots on, smoking a cig, and like we'd get whipped in. And if it was the finals or something, there'd be like, you know, like fans sitting there. We'd whip into where the people on the shore were partying, and like within two seconds, people would be pouring beer in your mouth and freaking spraying you with beer and having a good time. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was just a different mentality, especially because of uh. Parks' mentality and where he came from and where a lot of the other people, I mean, there still was just that little hint of a Shosky mentality. Not, you know, nothing kooky, but the fact that you're there to entertain. Right. Not necessarily there to beat people and to show that you're so much better than everybody else, but you're there to entertain, put on a show, enjoy yourself, and the more that happened, the better all of us did as a whole. You know what I mean? Sure. And and people were there to see you guys. Yeah. You know, they we're going to touch on some of this stuff a little bit later, but it it, it was just a different time. The fans were just different yeah. a, a long time ago. I mean, across the spectrum, show ski contest, three event contest, wakeboard contest. I mean, I remember a time when you could, when it was shoulder to shoulder, you couldn't walk around, you know, and nowadays that it's, all changed when they got rid of the beer tent. Yeah. We need to get we need to we need to get like a like a like Coors or Bud back on or oh, something. Yeah. That'd be that'd be definitely definitely fun. All right, Ruck, did you ever have any like contest rivals? Like people? Yeah. I'd say someone who that I tried kinda to I mean, back in those early days that I compet competed against the most, like I'd say trick wise, but I mean me and Watson were like right there and uh but it was always friendly. You never had any. There was never oh, me, anybody. No, no, no. Someone who I always enjoyed beating, obviously, was Darren Shapiro. Sorry, Darren. Love you, buddy. But uh, loved, loved, loved it when I got to beat you. Do you think Darren was kind of painted as the villain of wakeboarding back in those I days? Mean, if, if if we were if we were wrestling, Darren would have definitely been a villain. Yes, he, he would have. They say a heel. I mean, yeah, for sure, for sure. There's there's a couple. I wonder. Let's see who else was a villain. Hmm. Brandon Johnson, 
I, I, I think mean, he kind of was because he was like a young gun who was just crushing. Kind of seemed like he came out of nowhere or something. I wouldn't call him a villain. Yeah, but I don't know if I'd call him a villain. I never met the guy, so if Brandon, no, I, he's a nice guy. I know he's he's been kind of resurfacing lately because I follow all the wakeboarding Hall of Fame stuff. They just posted a cool video, so it was the first time I've heard Brandon Johnson yeah speak since probably uh, what Boombox or something. I don't know. Well, you know, you think of him, you think of him, you get to it, and uh, hey. We'll, we'll keep chatting. But, all right, Ruck, we're at the, the point of the show where I was hoping I could get another song from you, hopefully one from Braided Funk, which is... Yeah, sure. uh, right on, Danley. I like you were saying uh, this is a Braided Funk tune, and uh, it's called Tinsel. Telescope still up from the night before I woke up with a dry mouth on the floor I checked my pockets for my wallet and keys Then I realized that I had none of these Last night we were out checking on the stars When we got home from trotting down the bars I know the look you were giving me Let me up like tinsel on a Christmas tree Dano, put it up Take it down Put it up Take it down, down, down Put it up Take it down Put it up Take it down, down, down I realized my keys were nowhere to be found I tried to listen, no one made a sound One thing that was freaky, real trippy Was that piece of tinsel on the ground next to me Put it up, put it up Take it down, take it down Put it up, put it up Take it down, 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 down. Put it up, put it up Take it down, come on man, take it down Put it up Put it up, man. Take it down, 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 down. Yeah, duet. Nicely done. I figured, you know, that's it's more of a, you got to have a little backup on that chorus. That's, that. a, that's an old school B-Funk song too, very right? Very old, very old. So when did you write that song? Well, um, I wrote, I wrote uh, the words to that tune, but Patty Ando actually wrote the, the, the lick. Pat Anderson. Yeah, Patty Ando wrote that lick. Nice. Um, and Pat was uh, and Pat was in Sorry for Laughing with you too. He, he was. Yes. He was. So you guys kind of grew together. Yeah, yeah. We were, we've been writing music together for a long time. Um, Transition from punk rockers to well, hippies. Yeah, and you know, I mean, that whole group, uh, my brother, uh, Patty Ando, um, you know, we weren't punk rock, punk, we were like, you know, skate skateboard punk rockers. Sure. We, we weren't like. Leather jackets, leather jacket, and mohawk punk rockers. No. You know. But you you didn't have anything against those guys. You played shows with them. Oh yeah, we played shows with them all the time. Those guys had sure. your back. They did. Yeah, I mean they were, uh, you know, at the at the time it was just uh it was uh an interesting culture. Hey, hey, at one time the entire braided funk band lived here in Orlando. Um, now they're all back in Wisconsin. But did you ever see B Funk becoming like a serious band, maybe like touring or anything like that? I think we all thought like at one point, like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do this, blow it up. What held you guys back? Wisconsin? Pa- partying. Yeah. 
I, we're just a good time party band. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I think we could have, we could have taken the music a little bit more serious probably. And, uh, we had a lot of fun songs and stuff like that. And we had, we had, I thought, you know, we definitely played, uh, I, I think it was possibly 2006 where we played, uh, a lot. And once we got, uh, uh, a buddy of ours named Mike Favaro on uh, keys. It really opened up what we were doing, and I think we all took it a little bit more serious. The music actually, and uh, we had like two a two year run there where the music was, I'd say, the the pinnacle of what we were actually playing, and uh, played a couple festivals and uh, played a lot of shows that year, and uh, that was good. When I listened back to that stuff, I was like, yeah, you know, that was I was digging that. But there's some shows that you know you listen to back from. Uh, from like uh, Fitzwoodies and stuff, like uh, the early days, like oh three, two, oh three ish. To it, when we're just partying, jamming, and you're just like, ooh. Yeah, but it sounded so good in the moment. It sounded real good in the moment. Yeah, and we thought we sounded real good. Well, that's the thing. Everybody said, thought you said because we used to film everything. Well, because we were drinking along with the crowd, so we were getting a, we were all getting drunk at, at the same, you know, yeah, at the same rate. So everyone was kind of exper- everyone was kind of experiencing it together. Yeah. Okay, and and now, I I don't know how much you know about this, but you're uh to be heading home. Okay, so, uh, spoiler alert, guys, we're recording this episode before Christmas, and you and I are both heading back to uh the Midwest, uh for for the Christmas holidays or whatever, and there's going to be a little B funk, Braid of funk reunion show. Are you excited about that? I am. I am. Nice. It's been a it's been a couple years since. Uh, we've played together out. We've had a couple fun jams over at uh, Club Coppertone and uh, Matt Manderson, a lawyer from Chicago's uh, basement. But uh, it, uh, are you guys prepared for this one? Uh, you know, those uh, Mantis, uh, Pat, and Mark have been practicing and basically just sent me a song list of things that they wanted to play, and I just brushed up on them. So who's going to be most prepared, you? Probably. I mean, from what it sounds like. That those guys are those guys are on their game, you know. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and um, who knows? Maybe I'll bring my Zoom home and record the show. That'd be fun. Or- I I actually did hear that Mike Mantis has is going as old school as it gets, and he's having a certain auto audio visual guru oh, okay. from back in the day. Hey, 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 Dan Perret. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. I, I'm I'm not joking. No, well, I know I <laughs> I. I wouldn't put it past him at all. So hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed. And if we do record the show or anything like that, I'll try my best to maybe get it up on the website and my blog or something like that. So people can, can enjoy it as well. So, but you know, we'll, we'll have the classics in the, in the front row, do it getting down. Oh yeah. A little low walking. Yeah. I was going to say, you plan any low walkers? Uh, I'm sure there'll be a well, bunch of low walkers. The venue, the venue is a place in Wisconsin called the sitting bowl. And uh, it, it's a bar that was built, for low walker dancers, if you're if you're like taller than five foot eight, this bar isn't you're for be you. Your head yeah, on the exactly on the drop ceiling. Exactly. All right, so let's let's get back to some wakeboard stuff, Ruck. We were talking a little bit about competition. Are you done at 34 years old? Are you done competing for shizzle? For shizzle. So, what were some of your final events? Um, my the last contest I rode in was the uh, the Red Bull, the Wake Open. Okay, and I probably shouldn't have rode in that. 
Yeah, but they but I I recall you telling me that you weren't so sure about riding and you wanted to give your spot up and then they kind of convinced you into being into the event. Yep, that's true. That's that's true. And then you ended up getting hurt. Uh yeah, I smacked into the side of the big air pretty good. I just wasn't I, you know, my biggest problem at and that at that contest was uh I just didn't have my confidence up. I just wasn't feeling it. Sure. Sure. Uh the the mega ramp, have you hit that? since the the that event no nope i haven't nothing uh i mean I, we, I, honestly we have it at the lake and stuff like that and um uh, it just got to the point where i was just done doing things to prove that i could do them and if it wasn't fun anymore i couldn't make myself do it and i don't feel like getting broke off to get broke off anymore i mean i've been putting my body through the ringer for wakeboarding for, you know, solid, like when I was really giving it, I mean, there was 15 years of solidly giving it, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I just got to the point where I was like, you know what? I don't feel like I have to prove myself anymore and I'm not going to, cause I don't care yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Like. Well, uh, really? What more, what more do you have to do? I think yeah. a few years ago you found outside of contest success, you ended up winning trick of the year, which some, some believe, I think that it's the most important award in the industry. Basically that was, and that was gnarly what you did. That was a highlight of my career for sure. Was that, so that was a, was it a, that well, was a regular the, back mode. From, that was just special all around to me just because it was my, my first year back at radar back on, you know, well, I mean my first year on Ronix, but back with, you know, the OG crew, you know, that really, I mean, Paul O'Brien and the the whole gang. Um, like Parks and Chad yeah, and, and Danny. And, and just a lot of the employees that were over at Hyperlight before, you know, that went over there. Those are the guys that, you know, I was, you know, the Eric Ronzies, Ronsvelt, uh, Jay Stanley, um, you know, all those, all those types of guys, uh, Nick Jobies and people, people that I felt like most like, you know, at home and like we're more or less family, you know? Well, when there was a split between Hyperlite and Ronix, you pretty much had to make a business decision. Yeah, I, I did at that point. And, uh, um, I'm just really, you know, glad that everything worked out that I could go back and, uh, I was accepted with open arms. So for me, that, that first year back at, uh, Radar, when we were filming for Defy, I mean, like, I hadn't felt that motivated or that that stoke on progression and push personally pushing myself probably since you know like the earlier two thousand sure you know? sure so like I went there hot like I was ready to go like there's not very often to tell you the truth that I'm like normally you know I let people do their thing and like kind of feel it out and get going like I was like ready to go there and yeah. Normally I'm a little bit more mellow and just kind of take it all in and then kind of see what I want to do and whatever. But I knew exact going there. I knew exact because Danny told me what that what was going to be built and I was just thinking about it already and I was just kind of like amping on it. So what was the trick of the year? Uh, I was it was a mute mobe into from from a lake from from radar into the side pool, but. You know, like there's a lot of transfer pools and stuff like that. Now it, it it wouldn't nowadays if you just said to somebody what it was, they'd probably be like, ah, big deal. But this was literally pulled behind a boat, and you were literally booting out of the 
of the lake into this pool that was like 16, 17 inches deep, maybe 18. And, uh, and then ollieing back into the lake. And it was a pretty big, um, you know, difference in height and way, like a step out, up. way out on the side. I mean, we put like two or two or three ropes together to do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you could drift far enough over. And I mean, you were going like, we were hitting the thing at like probably a little faster than normal boat riding speed. You know what I mean? Like, so we were like going like probably like 25, 26 miles an hour. And, uh, it was gnarly. So were you surprised when they called your name at the Wake Awards as the winner for Trick of the Year? Or did you have kind of uh, inclination that you were going to win it? Well, I really didn't think I was going to win it just because that was a time in wakeboarding where there was a lot, a lot of evolving. It was starting to turn over more towards the park riding and all that stuff. But I mean, that was like one of the, you know, it's when the Phoenix Project just came out. And, you know, when when the whole way people were looking at what was possible and what wakeboarding really was all about was kind of changing. So I kind of feel like that was kind of a, an opener. Like see, people seeing that was like, man, like there's a lot more to wakeboarding than just wakeboarding nowadays. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, and, and if I, if I recall, as soon as you got onto Ronix, I mean, the, you blew up again. Like, you, like I look at it like, um, like it was almost a second wind for your career because I remember you got a, like sure. a full. It was like a pullout cover of of Wakeboard magazine of you doing a sequence of a double of a double cab roll. Yeah, which not too many people at the time were land. Like yes, there were some some like underground cable kids landing the 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 double cab rolls at that time, but really not too many guys on your level were were landing those double flips. And you had that you had that double flip. Then you had the Phoenix Project, which you had just been cut from Hyperlite, and then you moved over to, to Ronix. They immediately gave you a signature board, and it became like one of the top boards of the year, right? Yeah, it did pretty well. It did pretty well. So it seems like once you, you know, like like once you got on a team Ronix, it like I said, it was that second wind for you. It was like an extra boost. Um, how was that transition from? Oh, it was awesome. It just it was one of those things that just felt right, and you know. Um, having the support of, you know, like Chad Sharp Parks and Danny and, uh, Paul and the whole gang. I mean, that's something, you know, the w the way that happened and how willing and ready they were to have my back. Well, that's one of those things that you don't forget. And, you know, you make, you make decisions based off of stuff like that in your future. You're like, do you feel like people were kind of giving up on you at all? Uh, I mean, I just, you know, cause like at Hyperlight, we had that, uh, what that movie rewritten come out and like, I, th you know, I think, it, I think it was a pretty big part of that. And, uh, I kinda, I could, things were changing vibe wise there, obviously. And, uh, maybe my vibe wasn't really the vibe they were into anymore. So things change, you know? Sure. Well, you, you know what, at the end of the day, I think you have a better fit at Ronix ends up. Oh, trust me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Like I've trust never... me, if I would have if I would have just stayed there, I would have probably just fizzled away slowly. But Ronix gave me a whole nother uh, a whole nother fire under my belt and opportunity to step my riding up again, along with a bunch of, you know, other opportunities that have come, you know, further down the line.
And, you know, and to, and to give you credit as a, as a close personal friend of yours, I never heard you really talk trash about Hyperlight about the whole thing. I mean, you, you basically, from the moment it happened, you were like, hey, you know, this is, that's that time to, I think you were a little nervous for about five hours and then you got a phone call from Paul O'Brien telling you you had a, a spot on the team or something. If I remember how it all went down. Yeah, it happened. Uh, it was a, a smooth, a smooth transition for sure. So as the years progress now, uh, your position within Ronix has slightly changed. What would you say your role is now? Uh, life guru. Life guru. So tell, tell, kind of talk to us about what you're doing with, no, with Ronix now. You know, working out at Lake Ronix and, uh, you know, building and helping, trying to, you know, get some of our younger guys, you know, kind of give back in a way that Kobe and Bish did to me and help them out with uh, whatever they want to can visualize and build and bring that to life. And also, you know, doing social media and promoting our guys, you know, making them look as good as uh, they deserve to look. And, and, and uh, you're now, you're now filming and photo yeah. taking photographs and editing and stuff. And you're, and you've, you're, you're coming a long, long way from, from when you started, yeah, right? It's been a, it's been a, a great learning experience, and uh, I'm very, very appreciative and thankful for all the opportunities that I've been given uh, from Ronix, for sure. You know, talking about like Lake at Lake Ronix, um, you you know you're you're talking about being out there, and I know as as your as your close friend that you're spending thirty to forty to fifty some weeks, sixty uh, hours a week there. there. There's a couple of us that that busted out there for sure. I mean, it's like so who's in charge? Uh, I, I would say, I mean, no one is actually says, Hey, but you know, between like Mike Ferraro, myself and Chad Sharp, I'd say we hold it down pretty well. Yeah. And, and Brad was in that mix. Brad Smalo was yes, in that was. mix too. Yep. Um, so how, how have things changed since Brad, uh, had to go back home due to his injury? Um, you know, Brad was just, uh, a machine. So, uh, I'd say Chad and I have had to step up our, our game on the, the physical side a little bit because, and on the carpentry side, because Brad was uh, an excellent carpenter and, you know, and knew what he was doing. Me and Chowder winging a little bit more. Right, right. <laughs> well, I, I remember Brad was telling me when he got back, you know, months, a few months before his injury, he'd gotten back from New Zealand and he got to the lake and you, I remember you being so stoked about something that you built and Brad got back and he was like, yeah, it's awesome. But he took a level to it or something, and he told me he had to go back and like rebuild it. Yeah, that'll happen. But who's who's paying attention to that? Yeah, Brad Smela. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, you talked about helping develop some some new riders. I think that's pretty cool that that you're dabbling in that a little bit. So, who are some of these uh, athletes that that you're looking towards? You know, uh, growing in the future. Well, I mean, I mean, one that's I mean already growing, and he's growing on his own, but. Um... He's a really fun guy and just an insane, just so in, inspiring to watch him on the water uh, is uh, Dom Hernler. And then also uh, the pizza boy himself, Ma Massi Pifaretti. Ah, Massimiliano. Massimiliano. Very cool. Uh, well, those guys, I feel like those guys have already sort of, uh, you know, are sort of starting to make it. I want to. Oh yeah, no, yeah, they're making it for sure. I'm just saying, just your everyday, you know, just talking to them, you know. I want to, th I want to throw out a couple of names at you and just kind of get get your thoughts. Um, somebody like we'll we'll say like Pedro Caldas. 
Uh, Pedro, yeah, he's been coming out a bunch. He's a sick rider. Yeah, I haven't gotten to spend an insane amount of time, like, one-on-one or just hanging out. But, uh, you know, Mike, that's Mike's uh, that's Mike's department with right. Pedro. He's kind of been, you know, uh, through Red Bull and Ronix uh, doing the coaching thing. Sure. And, uh, you know. How about a Jamie Lopina? Yeah, Jamie Shreds. She's sick. She crushed it this she, season. Yeah, she's a sick rider. Another one I like is a Jake Palat, and I know he works with you a lot. Yeah, Jake's my main man. He, he he's old reliable. Yeah, he's a hard worker off the water, but his on water riding is definitely coming a long way too. Oh yeah, he's this last year. I mean, he's stepped up his game. So I mean, he's he's developing his own style and. Uh, you know, adding a lot of tricks to his trick bag. Ruck, do you see kids or or people and even adults, you know, making mistakes or poor career moves? And do you ever like want to reach out and be like, "Oh, I was there one time, man. Uh, here's some advice." Yeah, but you know, that's a there's a fine line these days. Um, you know, you can't. People are people don't want to hear stuff anymore. You know, you, you you sometimes I feel like if you you overstep your boundary, people stop listening to you. So sometimes you just got to be subtle. And if it's something that is truly worth noting, then yeah, maybe you should say something. But if not, you know, maybe they should just find out on their own. So that's kind of your advice. Let them learn. Let them learn. Just on the contest side of things, one more thing that I want to talk about is we'd we'd started uh, touching on a little bit, but like super fans... Wakeboarding used to have super fans, people yeah, that like tattooed. What happened? To, what happened to that? Yeah, actually, if you go on uh, Wakes Each, they got a couple of uh, some wakeboard tattoos. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, they look at that and say, "Wow, those guys, you know, that's hardcore." But I'm telling you what, back in the day, going to pro tour stops, almost every pro tour, you could run into somebody that had some sort of wakeboarding tattoo. He's like somebody doing like a back roll on their back or like, uh, like a, a like contest down or like I mean a like a brand or a hoochie glide or like a brand like a like, like a like a hyperlight tattoo down their back or a dragon tat yeah big dragon tat too you know why don't why don't people follow the sport like they did in the in the old days I just remember growing up with you and you know I remember ESPN we'd be watching a wakeboard contest and you well, knew all one, the there's one reason right there. Because we're obviously we're not on ESPN, but I remember you knowing like all the stats to all the riders, knowing everything about Murray and Nacrasin. Well, I'll tell you what, because our era of wakeboarders, pointless. The reason we were what we were is because we were first super fans. I mean, we were super fans. I knew everything about Scott Barley. I knew everything about, I mean, Kobe, Mike Weddington, Greg Nacrasin, Randy Harris. I mean. You know what I mean? Like, I knew everything. I had their pictures on my wall. I Wakeboarding was everything to me, and I think that's why our era was what it was, is because we were first super fans. We were. Yeah, it's something that our sport's missing, but I think a lot of that may have to do with the whole way we take wakeboard and just wakeboarding nowadays you know we, and i talked about this with scott byerly on his episode but i know you were a big connoisseur of wakeboarding videos but that was when one two videos a year would come yeah, out maybe, if you're lucky yeah two two or three might come out as it got older maybe you know certain eras had more than others but yeah but now you know there's freaking five edits that come out a week online and every company has their own edits and it's a lot to digest and the crazy thing is it's a lot to digest, but 
people digest it so fast that if you don't have more, then you're getting called out for not doing enough because people's attention spans are about, you know, this long these days. And I mean, if you put out an edit that's, you know, just a little too long, people won't even watch the whole thing. So, I mean, it are, is. Are people watching wakeboard videos anymore? Okay. Like, no, there's not videos, just edits, you know, you what about Kilgus's video? Um, uh, prime prime that came out you know and and i i think it was a great movie i think a lot of people enjoyed it but i think that if kilgus would have put something like that out around 2002 he could have retired oh totally for sure yeah it's just i i mean totally love kilgus and i've known the guy for a long time but the thing i think that was the deal with um a prime was that cinematography-wise like, and the shots, I mean, he had some of the dopest shots wakeboarding has ever seen. I just think that the way it was presented and where wakeboarding is now, a movie like that, I mean, I think it's almost not irrelevant, but it's, it's harder to get across for people to totally vibe to. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, if you look shot for shot, like the stuff that Kilgus put into that movie is freaking insane. Like, so sick. Like, some of the most legit stuff you can, I mean, the shots are just, yeah, you know, it goes without saying. Everyone knows that Kilgus is a master. But, but yeah, just, uh, I, I just think that the the era of wakeboarding that we're in, and not just the era, but the the people that are watching it, it might not have been presented to them correctly. Right. Well, it's it's just uh, an era of, of uh, I guess, attention deficit disorder. Yeah. Instant <laughs> gratification, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, I'm a criminal of it too, I guess. You know, like, I, I'm always just scrolling through videos as quick as possible, I guess. You know, on some yeah. stuff, I, I, I don't have the full patience, but... Something about those old wakeboard videos. I, I pop them in. Um, Ron Seidenglad, Sideways Films, sent me like 20 videos a couple of months ago. And I'll sit there and watch them and love them. And oh, there's another so master much. right there. Ron, yeah. Ron was, I mean, Ron was a wizard. I'd love to see him. I, I loved what he did with Darren last year, Darren Shapiro. He did a little edit for Darren. It was amazing. But I actually just saw on Facebook Ron put up uh, like his new reel or something like that. And yeah, he's... I mean, I don't think any of it had to do with wakeboarding, but the guy is on another level. Yeah. Well, it'd be good to see uh, Ron back in the the wakeboard game. But All right, Ruck, well, this has been pretty awesome. Uh, I'm going to ask if you'd do me one more favor. We we talked about your music, your band. You've played a song from uh, Sorry for Laughing, your first band, and then Braided Funk. And you're in a new band. Uh, talk about your new band. Oh uh, yeah, we're called uh, the Stereotype, and we've been playing together for probably a little over two years now, somewhere in there. But uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun playing with uh, some guys that are way better than me. So it's been a very, very fun learning process. And you guys have you guys have had some legit shows. You've opened up for some legit bands, right? Uh yeah, we opened up for uh, the Heavy Pets and uh, the Revivalists, and we got a couple other good decent uh decent sized festivals coming up this year we've played we've been playing all over central florida and stuff like that but uh musically it's um for me one of probably one of the most stimulating projects i've been involved in 
Beautiful. All right. I know before the podcast, when I asked you to play the songs, and you're like, ah, oh, stereotype. I don't have like too yeah, much stuff good. that's like conducive to acoustic or whatever. Yeah, it's kind of hard because everyone everyone has their niche and everyone's playing something different. So it's not like something you can just strum along to. So what we agreed on is that you're gonna play us a song that what it's an original B funk song, but now the stereotype covers it, right? Yeah, you, you really want me to sing this? I can't really sing this one right no, now. I'll just give it your best. It's it's a and it, it's a special song. It's a special song because uh, it's got I don't know something to do with with wakeboarding or wakeboarders or something like that, right? Yeah, something. Right. It has something to do with something. I think. Right. Well, we'll we'll get to, we'll get to the gist of it here in just one second. The song is called uh, Gravity Chamber. Mm-hmm. All right. Right, here we go. Feeling heavy, caught inside forever. I know you feel the gravity right now Cause I know you feel the gravity right now Yeah, there just a little little taste. A little taster, so I guess if anybody wants to hear the full version of that they need to uh yeah, we got a live shows on our on our Facebook and uh, I recorded one. Yeah, yeah, you did, you did. I actually made From a music Anima video. Saris. Yeah, I actually made a music video. I finished it the other day. I gotta send that over to you. You should send that over. Yeah. Yeah, Colin Har- Harrington's made a couple from uh, Gravity Chamber too. Was, was Gravity Chamber is what we used to call Colin's? Gar- I'm sorry, Shane's Garage when uh, Clay Fletcher, Colin Harrington all lived there. And I, I, I recall that song being written out because we used to have little jams out in that garage. It was written during one of those jam sessions. Yeah, we play. We were playing a lot of bluegrass in those days because Clay used to rip the banjo and Colin would get on the bass and I'd play. Actually, like at the end of uh, Box of Fun, there's a, there's a bluegrass jam that we did. Yeah. Drunken Sailor? No, 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 that was, that wasn't the jam that we did, but yes, we did play that song. That is all, that is a favorite, right? It was, you know, it was a crowd fav. Yeah. All right, Ruckster, appreciate it, man. This has been really, really good. Uh, Before we go, I want to give you the opportunity to let people know where they can find your music or info on your band, if there's any of that around. Yep, yep, definitely uh, check me out, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Eric Ruck, at Eric Ruck. And Eric Ruck. Um, Remind him how to spell it. E-R-I-K-R-U-C-K. It's all about the K, baby. It's all about the K. And um, yeah, check out uh, The Stereotype on Instagram. That is uh, underscore the underscore stereo underscore type. And then stereotype, the stereotype on Facebook. I'll make sure that I put links up on the on the page when we are ready for that. Yeah, and then, yeah, I'd just like to say thanks to Ronix, Tiger, and Bellbong, Woodrow's, Perfsky, for all the love over the years. So, uh, and thanks to you, Dano, 
Yeah. Well, thank you, Ruck. I mean, you do, you've done a lot for me. I, you know, I'm I'm not one to pretend like I don't know why I have what I have, how I got what I got, and there is no question in my mind that uh, uh, you definitely helped me get my foot in the door for for a lot of things. Something we didn't talk about was our years on tour together because mm-hmm. now I've been announcing for I think this is going to be my twelfth year, eleventh or twelfth year announcing, and for the five or six years that you were competing, um, I helped you save a couple of extra bucks. Yes, yes, you did. Well, I was always too cheap to get a hotel room, so I just told Dano I was staying in his room, and then uh, if there was other people, I'd tell Dano that he was going to have to scoot over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> luckily, luckily, I was always a little shy and bashful with the babes in that era. Oh, yeah, because yeah, I'm sure that changed up a bunch. Well, now, now, now you have a girlfriend. Yeah, so. exactly. Some exciting stuff. Well, Ruck, this has been a lot of fun, and obviously um, this is the short version of what we could have done. You and I can go on for hours and hours uh, days, conversing. Probably days. Yes, we there is there is a lot. And so um I thank you. Um I I am guessing that one day I will have you back on here in one form or another. And um Yeah. So so there it is. Uh good conversation. Some good some good tunage, some music. Mr. Eric Ruck. I appreciate it. Thanks guys. All right, guys, don't go anywhere. I'll be right back to close this episode out. It's your boy, the noise of the north. Hey, that's me, and you're listening to the Golden Mike Podcast. Hey, hey, Golden Mike Podcast listeners. I'm excited to announce Woodrow Sustainable Optics back on board with us for 2016. The crew here at the Golden Mike have been enjoying our Christmas gifts courtesy of Woodrow's. The producer's been rocking his pair of gooses, and I'm always loving my joys. The entire line of Woodrow's are available online at woodrows.com. And if you use my promo code MANO30, you're going to get an additional 30% off your entire order. Once again, it's promo code MANO30 at woodrows.com. That's W-O-O-D-R-O-Z-E.com. The Golden Mike Podcast wants to thank Performance Ski and Surf for supporting us both on and off the water. Stop by the main store in Orlando, Florida for all your towed water sports needs. Performance is also online, so check them out at perfski.com. We'll be partnering up to offer some great deals as we head into the new year, so be sure to stay tuned to every episode of the Golden Mike Podcast. Thanks again to Bill Porter and the entire crew at Performance Ski and Surf. We're back, and I had a great time with the Ruckster over at his house recording in the small garage, kind of his man cave. We touched on a lot of great stuff, and it was cool reliving some memories from the old days. I'm sure it won't be the last time you hear Ruck on the podcast, and I'll do my best to keep you all updated on when and where his band, The Stereotype, will be playing, because you know if I'm not jet-setting to the world's biggest events in Toad Water Sports, I'll be right there by Ruck's side getting down to the music like I've done for oh so long. Emails and messages have been pouring in. No, no they haven't, but I've gotten a few and I truly appreciate and love them all. I'm making a collage and maybe one day even a uh, quilt. Well, that's that's also a lie, but I do want to hear from you all. Email me, goldenmike at noiseofthenorth.com or message me through the Golden Mike Facebook page. I will read all your messages. I do want to remind you all to follow me on Twitter at the Dano T. Mano and at the Golden underscore Mike. 
On Instagram, it's at Dano T. Mano. Like and share the Golden Mike podcast on Facebook, too. It does a ton, guys, and I appreciate your help. Once again, I thank mi amigo, my brother from another mother, the one and only Mr. Eric Ruck. And now a few shout-outs to the sponsors and the folks behind the scenes. Thank you to SeaDeck Marine Products, Performance Ski and Surf, PerfSki.com, Woodrow Sustainable Optics, Boulder Boats, Logos That Pop, and Empire Sound and Lighting. That's going to do it for today's show. Appreciate y'all for tuning in and listening. I'm the Noise of the North, Dan of the Mano, and you can hear me next time once again on the Golden Mike Podcast.